Powered by volunteer community involvement, this is CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Bikini Drive-In's mission is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and gender studies. Since we'll be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, listener discretion is advised. Also, spoilers ahead. Today I'm joined by Alex Hall. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Alex Hall is a queer film writer based in Toronto. She's the creator of Leslie Borden, an Instagram account that examines and archives depictions of queer women in genre cinema. Her work aims to provide a critical analysis of queer horror through a lesbian lens. Most recently, she contributed a chapter to the forthcoming book, Screening Queer Horror, and was a juror for Blood in the Snow's Development Lab, which aims to support and leverage underrepresented genre filmmakers within Canada. This week, we'll be discussing Amy Holden Jones' 1982 slasher, The Slumber Party Massacre. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party to bare their souls. All the girls are coming, except Mary and Linda. And they won't be missed. The party begins at 8 o'clock. It's a slumber party for old time's sake. Love it too. Do you think I'm getting better? <laughs> but be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. <laughs> Some people may have to leave early, but others will hang around and hang around. You're underage. Negative. Let's go. You're not gonna eat that dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. But for those who stay, there'll be plenty of surprises <laughs> and non-stop action. For sure, no one's getting any sleep the night of the Slumber Party Massacre. Close your eyes for a second and sleep forever. With her parents out of town, high school senior Trish decides to throw a slumber party, but things go downhill when an escaped killer wielding a power drill is loose in the neighborhood. So Alex, what is your history with the Slumber Party Massacre? um yeah my history with the film goes pretty far back I think it was actually one of the first slasher films I'd ever seen um I rented it with some friends for a slumber party like very shade um I think we're probably in elementary school um I was actually thinking the other day that um some of the first queer films or like queer coded films that I'd ever seen were actually the films that we were renting for like these like um, slumber parties we were having, having like um, we were renting films like Psycho and um, Sleepaway Camp and um, Sons of the Lambs and obviously like at the time I wasn't super conscious of like the presence of queerness in these films but I do remember watching um, uh, Sleepaway Camp and the scene where Angela and her brother are uh, watching um, their father and his partner and this is like really like intimate and mm -hmm. erotic embrace um, mm -hmm. I think that was like actually the first instance of queer intimacy I at least 
remember seeing in like on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film um, from a pretty massacre, like um, I've always associated with that very like formative um, kind of transgressive space of like mm-hmm. the slumber party. Um, and uh, like a few years later, I, I read um, Ruby Fruit Jungle by a uh, um, screenwriter of Summer Party Massacre, um, Rita Mae Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, at the time, I didn't make the association that uh, she had authored both texts. But um, uh, when it came out, there wasn't very many um, books that contained um, lesbian protagonists, like written by lesbians. And I think there was like three film or three books um, that I read. And I think Ruby Free Jungle was the only one authored by a lesbian. Um, so that in itself kind of played a very formative role. And then years later, I made the association that um, she had authored both. And um, I guess more recently, um, a few years ago, when I started my um, Instagram account, um, Lizzie Borden, um, I think Slumber Party Massacre was one of the first films that I wrote about for it. I think I did like a three-part uh, post series because I kind of went down this like intense Rita Mae Brown rabbit hole where I like kind of was uncovering um, her influence on the film and just her life and just her more recent kind of dabblings in murder mystery novels. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, uh, so I think that it just kind of like spanned this like arch of years for me. And I do just associate with that time where I was just like very much being introduced to horror cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's so great. And like, what a perfect time and the age and kind of like event or like at a slumber party would just be like a perfect scenario to actually watch this yeah. movie yeah yeah it was like the only time I was really ever allowed to to watch horror films too mm. so it just felt like so exciting and yeah cool um are you a fan of slashers kind of generally I am yeah I do I love them so much um um actually the first horror movie I actually ever watched by myself was Friday the 13th I was mm-hmm. like home sick from school and my I guess my dad rented it for me which doesn't really seem to have been something he would do but it happened and <laughs> I just remember it being like I was like one super thrilled to be home from school but I just felt like so cozy so comforted by this like film and um it's also the only sub like subgenre of horror that my friends uh, like really like so mm-hmm. I just consider it to be such a collective like a like a subgenre that just like provokes such a collectivity I guess like mm-hmm. just so fun to watch with with other people I guess I'm yeah sure. definitely I think because like with a lot of slashers like the story is can be like quite simple so they kind of like make sense to watch with other people. Yeah. Or like, yeah, like a party setting or a sleepover setting or anything like that. Yeah. Um, have you um, have you seen the sequels or the remake of Slumber Party Massacre? Uh, yeah. Um, I've only seen the second sequel. I watched it for the first time maybe two summers ago. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I haven't um, seen it yet. Oh no, okay, it's short, it's shorter than the original. I think it's like just over an hour. Amazing. So they were like a perfect double feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen the third, but I know that they're all, they've all been directed by women, maybe even written by women. Mm. Um, and the second, second one's fun. There's like this like kind of kinky leather guitar wielding killer in it. Um, and there's a girl band and Amazing. yeah. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, Okay, cool. Um, I guess I just want to talk a little bit about the 1980s slasher boom era. So I have a quote here from an essay from bloodydisgusting.com titled Unbridled Chaos and Unfiltered Creativity, The Beauty of an 80s Slasher Films by Wesley Laura. So this writer cites Halloween and Friday the 13th films as like the films that influenced the slasher media mania of the 1980s. 
Friday the 13th, to be specific, was released in 1980 and at the height of its success, broke down the doors for violent slasher movies to be made. It was not only wildly successful at the box office, and, but even more profitable thanks to an incredibly low budget and the use of mostly unknown actors, say for Betsy Palmer. The slasher subgenre of horror had finally proven that films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes, Black Christmas, and Halloween weren't complete flukes but it, when it came to mass appeal, leading to a wild and chaotic period in the 1980s when slasher films became the norm, trying to capitalize on the booming market with what seemed to be a new slasher flicks coming one to, th one to three months or so, every one to three months or so. Films like Sleepaway Camp, Maniac, Prom Night, The Slumber Party Massacre, Final Exam, and later supernatural-flavored slashers like Child's Play, A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Slayer, etc., were just a handful of a wide array of slasher films in the 1980s, taking advantage of the market while it was profitable to craft some of the most memorable, for good and bad reasons, horror films at the time. 80 slashers aimed to provide horror thrills to an audience in a more tongue-in-cheek manner, not necessarily as full-blown comedies, but more with a dark sense of humor that had audiences acknowledge and sometimes even embrace the fun that could be had while watching these kinds of violent movies. 80 slashers, despite following the familiar slasher formula, were bluntly violating the rules of filmmaking, putting a stronger emphasis on the experience of watching the film over concerns to tell a technically well-crafted story. Um, yeah, so Alex, what do you think of this era of slashers? Um, well, um... I think that maybe the reason why there's, they remain so effective and so pertinent um, is because they are so like woman focused and not just that, but they depict a sort of like um, gendered violence um, in a way that allows the viewer to kind of like work through anxieties surrounding these sort of um, threats. Um, and in a way that other genres maybe don't allow the space for um, in the same way. And I think that there is like, they draw a huge number of women spectators for this mm -hmm. reason, I guess. Um, I, in the research for this film, I did come across a, an interview with Siskel and Ebert and they are very notorious in their belief that um, uh, this first era of slashers at least is, um, very much a backlash of like uh, second wave feminism in the way that um, women are particularly targeted and punished for the way that they were attempting to seek um, emancipation and independence and agency. Um, but I think that it's often like ignored that there is also quite a large number of men that are victimized in these films. Like mm -hmm. if you think of, um, I guess a good example would be maybe a proto-slasher, proto um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which actually only one woman is actually killed on the screen. And I think the majority is act of victims is um, or actually the men on mm. screen. And um, yeah, I just think that um, it brings light a lot of anxieties um, that foreground um, certain fears pertaining to women and also minorities. Mm. And yeah, there was this one quote by Isabel Pinedo, a film theorist that like, um, she, wrote in her text, um, Recreational Terror, Women and the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing mm -hmm. um, about the way that, like it, it kind of tackles what Siskel and Ebert were talking about, but um, kind of subverts it in the way that she says, um, the slasher film is after all an expression of female agency in which female agency wins out. Part of the pleasure to be gleaned by female viewers lies in the combination of arousing such anxieties in men while securing female mm. victory. So, I mean, yeah, like it does to like um, generate um, the idea of, and anxieties of, that came out from the second wave of feminism, mm. but isn't necessarily as like denigrating as Siskel and Ebert were kind of theorizing or speculating. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you also shared um, 
an essay by Anna Biller, which was very uh, interesting, <laughs> but also like very frustrating. Yeah, uh, frustrating. Yeah. No. So yeah. so yeah, did you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I almost it's minimizing this somehow. Oh, there. Um, yeah, I guess I was brought, it was brought to my attention. I think maybe she wrote it around that same time in 2018, mm -hmm. where it kind of started with these Twitter posts, um, where she was kind of like um kind of ranting against the figure of the final girl in slashers. Um, and then she, I think at some point links to this, um, it's kind of like a manifesto of sorts where um, she kind of talks about the misogyny present in slasher, modern slasher, slasher films. But it's interesting because further down, um, I guess a Twitter thread, she mm -hmm. kind of admits that she actually hasn't seen many slashers. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of more based on, um, I guess the, these ideas that have just kind of like spiraled um, regarding the slasher. I mean, yeah. in some cases they are warranted, obviously like it yeah. is like a subgenre that um, features women in all sorts of different various ways. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was a bit um, frustrating to, to kind of hear this, um, stance from someone that yeah is kind of like a horror feminist um figure I guess mm -hmm. yeah. yeah um and the essay is called the misogyny of the modern slasher film and I think yeah it's just like available like through her website on her blog, or on her blog. Yeah. yeah yeah and it was kind of like I guess it just generalizes horror audiences and also she had kind of has these like kind of vague ideas at like and very like binary wise thinking of like femininity versus masculinity mm -hmm. I find kind of yeah kind of dismissive and and strange and also it's like well if you're not a fan of of slasher films or horror films really anyway then yeah it would make sense that maybe you wouldn't find any sort of like positive representation whatever that means or really like sympathize with characters or, or whatever yeah yeah exactly yeah um I did have a quote here that I kind of wanted to talk about in relationship to that um to the Anna Biller essay um so it's from an essay called Lion Lips and Spiked Bats Amy Holden Jones and the Women of the Slumber Party Massacre by Willow Caitlin McKay McLean historically the final girls of virgin the, historically, the final girl is a virgin has survived the brutal violence of the villain in question while her friends have died and is the only person who can stand up against the monster. The end goal of all these stories depended on audiences to understand this woman's perspective and root for her survival. Carol J. Clover's seminal, seminal text, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film from 1992, was the original entry point for this idea at, and nearly comes to the same conclusion I do about slashers. They're entirely about women. If one is willing to dig beyond the surface level misogyny and violence, there's something in the genre to be reclaimed and repositioned, not as a feminist, but curious about how women navigated violence. In the 1980s, boys went on adventures in movies like Back to the Future, The Goonies, and Stand By Me, but women, women survived. And it maybe this is kind of like a generalization, but it does kind of feel like horror sometimes feels like the only genre where women get to do anything and they actually get to be the main characters and they are like central, even if, like for Slumber Party Massacre, for example, like the characters aren't completely like well developed, but they definitely have like interior lives and like it is about their relationships and it's like they're very sweet and they actually like seem like friends and they play sports. They're not necessarily just talking about like what boys they like, which they do talk about that too, but that's not the main focus. And I feel like Slumber Party Massacre um, is quite special in the fact that it's like focuses on the girls rather than the killer yeah exactly um I was watching one of the links that we included in the notes and it was a documentary and Amy Holden Jones is it's amazing because she's she's being interviewed in a graveyard the entire time oh my gosh um, <laughs> yeah 
Um, and she talks about making a concerted effort to make sure that um, the women were, when they were uh, killed, um, their deaths kind of happened more off screen or like in the case of Jackie, who was the, the sole black character in the mm-hmm. movie and um, coach Jana, um, they were killed, but it was a very like hurried, not very much a glorified spectacle. And the men were the ones, and actually all the men in the movie die in Summer Party Massacre, like mm-hmm. Mr. Content. <laughs> um, oh, <wait>. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mr. Content. <laughs> yeah. It's such an awkward name. Like you just want to say content, but there's that emphasis on the ant. Um, yeah. What a weird yeah, and, character like, choice. The men, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> him and his snails yeah yeah, the 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 men are the ones that become the ones that are most victimized at least on Mm -hmm. screen Mm -hmm. glorious deaths um yeah yeah I guess yeah the only kind of prolonged scene where a woman is being kind of like is scared and is getting killed is the the first character at the school who's kind of chased through the gym yeah but even then, yeah, you don't necessarily see her death. Yeah, there's yeah. A, that whole like, blood dripping scene. I mean, yeah, I guess they, that is drawn out. So I took a script that he had on the shelf that he had shelved and was not going to make, which was called Don't Open the Door by Rena Mae Brown. And uh, I, look, I read several, but that one happened to have a prologue that had a suspense scene, a dialogue scene, and an action scene. And I thought, well, if I do this prologue, he'll see I can do those three things. And so. Uh, I put it together on a, on Joe Dante's chem, and he gave me some temp tracks from a film of his, The Howling, and I, and Joe called Roger and said, take a look at this. First Roger said, how much did you do this for? And I said, well, it cost me about $1,000. And he said, you have a future in the business. And um, I was expecting at that point that we'd talk about something else I could direct, but he wanted me to finish that script. I was at the time supposed to edit E.T. because I had done very well as an editor. And uh, I had this choice of directing this script, um, which needed work, and, uh, or E.T. <laughs> and I took a huge leap of faith, and I, did, and I you know, started rewriting Slumber Party Massacre, and we had one month of pre-production, and I became a director instead of an editor. I still think there's some people who think that I did something horrible by directing a slasher movie. I guess they haven't seen it, and maybe they missed the fact that it's a comedy, which it is. It's both a slasher film and a comedy. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing women always face. Is you know, it's okay for Scorsese, it's okay for Jack Nicholson, it's okay for Coppola, it's okay for Jonathan Demme to go do exploitation films with Roger Corman, but a woman's supposed to be above that. Well, I'm sorry, that's the way you broke into the business. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about Rita Mae Brown and Amy Holden Jones? Yeah, I mean, where to start? I like, like, there's so much regarding both directors. Once you start digging a bit, that it just like definitely snowballs. I guess going back to kind of like the Anna, Anna Biller thing, where like this this disappointment sits in regard to. Um, her views maybe not so much aligning to the way that you would hope they would. Um, it seems like over the years that Amy Holden Jones's opinion of who really is to um, claim authorship of the screenplay has shifted in a, in a really weird way that kind of erases almost Rita Mae Brown's involvement in the film. I was reading, I think it was, oh, um, an interview with Horror Homeroom where she kind of just like claims that if she, she she included Rita Mae Brown's name in the credits as a nicety for the most part um, mm. because she had rewritten the, the script to the point where I guess the original um, hints of uh, Brown's script, which I think was called Don't Open the Door. Um, there's like three different titles that mm-hmm. the film kind of possessed over its like um, span. Um, but yeah, she she's claimed that that Brown's script wasn't necessarily as satirical as 
she had claimed it to be that she had rewritten a lot of the jokes. Um, but I don't know, there's discrepancies, definitely. I know that Rita Mae Brown, um, I think she's distanced herself from the film over the years because so much was changed from her original idea of what she wanted the film to be. Um, and that was definitely just a straight up kind of satire um, comedy. And mm. um, I mean, I, I like the balance of the the tones between kind of Corman and then Jones and then Brown. Mm. I think it works really well, but um, yeah, I think it's really interesting and a little confusing. I just kind of like want to get my hands on that original script and see um, exactly what, how much of a transformation it went through and what was kept and so forth. Yeah, so the, the lore of this film is basically, yeah, Rita Mae Brown, who is a feminist author, um, wrote the screenplay for Summer Party Massacre, which was originally entitled Don't Open the Door. And then it, the script sat for a while, like unproduced, kind of like in a drawer somewhere. And Rita Mae Brown, no, sorry, Amy Holden Jones, who was an editor at that time, um, had found it and then brought it to Roger Corman to make it. And yeah, she apparently, it was initially like a satire comedy, kind of making fun of slasher tropes. Um, where then um, Amy Holden Jones and Roger Corman kind of made it seem, it sounds like they kind of cut out the, the comedy. They made it more of a straight, straightforward slasher film. Yeah, uh, apparently um, Amy Holden Jones actually left an opportunity to edit E.T. to <laughs> her debut as a director. Oh my gosh, what a gamble. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it wasn't until the film um, had its like preview that um, she realized she had made the right decision because Corm Roger Corman was like, yeah, this was the most successful preview in history. I don't know exactly what he was gauging it upon, but it was like mm -hmm. beloved right away. And oh, um, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think she initially won some like student film festival with a short documentary, I think in her 20s. Mm -hmm. um, and it was judged by Scorsese. And then he kind of loved it so much. He took her on as an assistant for taxi driver. And then from there, she worked with Joe Dante. And mm -hmm. but it's weird, like her her um, credits following Slumber Party Massacre, I think she only directed like three other films and she ended up writing the script for Beethoven, <laughs> Mystic Pizza and Indecent Proposal. Like oh, such a varied oh. <laughs> selection of yeah. films. <laughs> yeah. Um, has Rita Mae Brown written any other screenplays or does she mostly write, um, write novels? I was looking at her filmography and so I initially thought that she was in the documentary I watched with Amy Holden jo Jones, but she was miscredited. I think someone thought Amy Holden Jones was Rita Mae Brown, um, but she apparently did write the script to, I think a Tales from the Crypt episode, something to do with a werewolf. I haven't seen it. Um, and then maybe a few other things, but I don't think they were genre films. I think there were some dramas mm -hmm. and yeah. Yeah, nothing super notable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be like so interesting to see what her what her sort of vision for Slumber Party Massacre actually was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a friend and I, um, Miss Santiago, who actually hosts um, the Horrorsphere um, podcast, um, we were kind of in talks over the summer about kind of diving further and trying to reach out to Rita Mae Brown. She's a bit elusive like I think we could uh, we could only find contact information through her publisher um and I don't think she reached out to her and I don't think there was ever a response back but there's definitely um interest in kind of yeah following the trail to this elusive um script mm -hmm. that may or may not still <laughs> be accessible I don't know <laughs> yeah oh so interesting um I want to talk a little bit about the gays in this film and this is kind of um connected to Anna Biller's comments and Roger Ebert's Roger and Ebert's comments um kind of about 
slashers in general. Um, one kind of like uncomfortable um, sort of scene in this film was at um, Roger Corman's request. Is that correct? Like the shower scene? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so there is this kind of like long drawn out nude scene with the girls all in the shower. And there's like, you're basically like following this bar of soap, like <laughs> being passed along to all these girls in the shower. And then the camera pans down and it's just like Trish's butt for like a very long time. And it's like, you can, I kind of read it as like, as like funny, like it's Amy Holden Jones kind of like making fun of that sort of like expected nudity. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is just like Roger Corman, like wanting to see an ass on screen or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. How, do you, how do you feel about that scene? Um, now that you mention it, I kind of like feel like that soap is kind of like the sisterhood of the traveling pants. But like <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's multiple like lenses here, like obviously Browns, then there's Jones, and then very much Corman's. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, Jones felt very hesitant to include a include that but she knew it was kind of like a box she had to check so mm -hmm. she just kind of I from what I like read and from some interviews just she kind of like wanted to to include it in a way that would appease Corman um so it is kind of it just feels technical it just feels like I mean it, it falls into the whole theme of voyeurism within the movie mm -hmm. um but then there's the girls looking at each other. There's like um, Valerie, the new girl, and there's Trish. And there's like a scene where they make extended eye contact over like yes. a few shower stalls. <laughs> That's very like um, notable. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and it's kind of returned in a way too, because the women are actually they're talking sports. Um, they're talking about their game, but they're also kind of like objectifying um men um they're talking mm -hmm. about like their favorite like players and yeah it's it's interesting yeah it is a complicated scene if you consider like intention versus like I don't know it is such an awkward scene but again then you get that like very like cute look between Valerie and Trish which is so I think mm -hmm. it's very yeah. like extended and very yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems very like intentional. I think Amy was, you know, one of the struggling mavericks in this in this world, you know, trying to to break through the glass ceiling and and uh, and get the work and having to and having for her to direct a film and to be behind the camera directing the shots and asking us to take off our clothes, probably hard on her. I think your tits are getting bigger. Mine? <laughs> I think I did regret it at first. You watch the film, and just from the beginning of the film, the 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 um, the pans of Michelle Michaels' body—it's just like right off the bat. It's like, and we're going to titillate you, audience. Get get ready. Mm, mm, mm. Do you like watching basketball on TV? Well, the poor girls—they knew that going in, they had to do that because um, you know when you did a film for Roger, there were certain expectations: tits, butts, blood. I guess that was the, the way it went. Nudity was more important to him than sex. And, you know, he has to sell the thing. I find that the shower scene a little squeamish to watch, watch because it's very pro forma. You can see by the way I did it that I'm like just hitting, you know, okay, you want it, here it is. Here's the nudity, that's it. I have a quote here from an essay by Emanuela Betty called Slumber, Slumber Party Massacre and the Male Gaze. There are countless instances in which boys from Trisha's high school and the killer himself are staring, spying, and quietly watching the girls. I realized that the gratuitous nudity was not so much for the gratuity, but to direct, directly point out how this group of girls is the target of a voyeuristic threat and are purposely being objectified through these male characters' gazes to show that they are in fact the victims of the killer's drill, but also of the male gaze. There, there's a scene that says it all in which the, ki the kids walk past a dumpster where the body of one of the victims is lying in the trash unnoticed. The movie is about what we see and what we don't see, and more specifically, knowing, knowingly watching and unknowingly being watched. This is the basis for the concept of the male gaze in the cinema, which is finding pleasure in looking at a person as an object who becomes the unwilling or unknowing victim of the gaze. So 
you added in your notes that um, the actor who played uh, Russ Thorne did kind of like method acting. Can you um, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm just trying to find, okay. Yeah, um, in that same documentary, he was, well, this was his first role and I think he just like dove right in and apparently had made the intention to not interact with any of the women on screen so that he remained like a mysterious figure. He remained like um, a stranger to them, but he kind of took it like so far that he would actually creep on them during lunchtime from behind things. And like, yeah, he just like very much like, um, yeah, there's this quote where he, he says that he wanted, I wanted them to have that fearfulness and just like extend that into the scenes. Um, so it's interesting that it just like the voyeurism definitely breaches the confines of the screen in this way and just like becomes more realized and more insidious to the performances in, in a very like suspect way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The rest Thorin character is so interesting. And again, like with Mr. Content and the like the teenage boys, like yeah. all the men in this film are like quite like ineffectual and generic. Yeah, yeah. Like, totally. Yeah, Mr. Content is just like a guy in a bad wig who lives next door and hunts snails. And wears very flashy shirts and yeah, hunts yeah. snails with like a cleaver. Yeah. It like that scene actually like gave me flashbacks to like the scene where he like machetes the snail yeah. like right before our eyes like I don't know if it's him or someone in the crew but it's, a snail definitely gets macheted yeah and like yeah. it definitely gave me flashbacks to cannibal holocaust and mm. that like scene oh, that no not like fully like absorb into my my oh. view I like yeah <laughs> just... I wish I could unsee the turtle from Cannibal Holocaust it's so deeply upsetting <laughs> yeah um, yeah it's so mad um but yeah and then Russ Thorne is also interesting they just like he they show him so much he's not necessarily just like this shadowy figure or like this monster he's just like some guy with a sweaty face who's wearing double denim <laughs> yeah the Canadian tuxedo yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm, and I'm kind of wondering, like, was the intention to be like, to say that like, oh, this is just like any man, like there isn't any kind of like mystery surrounding him. Yeah. I wonder there. Yeah. It's very unique in that way that, and it's, it is like, it, I think it goes from point of view to like us being able to gaze upon him too, mm -hmm. which is interesting. So like we can um, return that gaze, I guess. Cause mm -hmm. yeah. Voyeurism is like, definitely and it's not just the men like all the men do actively like watch the women in very like typical manner but then there's like um coach Jana who has the carpenter dr drill her uh, people so like it's like it's offering to like coach Jana like here now you can like look back too although there it was never filled so it's just like this hole that like the elements can like penetrate and like, I don't know exactly what that was about. But then there's also Courtney, the younger sister of Valerie, who, um, you know, is eager to indulge in the playgirl. Mm -hmm. um, and she's not, it's interesting because when she's talking to her friend on the phone, she's clearly very repulsed by boys. So I think it's more the thrill of like, like, participating in this like rebellious act of like mm. looking at this thing not necessarily in a sexual manner like it's more gleeful it's more like yeah like she's reclaiming mm -hmm. her her like um ability to kind of objectify these men mm. um yeah in kind of like a safe like kind of distanced position where she doesn't actually have to like interact with like a human person <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Courtney's so silly. I love Valerie and Courtney. I think they're so good. Yeah, that's great. You know, and apparently, okay, so the second film is Courtney, but a little bit older. Like, mm -hmm. apparently, it follows her narrative a bit more. But um, she reminded me, I mean, I guess 
since this film came first, but I saw a bit of like Cecile from Cruel Intentions in her, like the kind oh, of like definitely, yeah, <laughs> youth kind of very like yeah, virginal but like bratty and trying to navigate her place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Was it Rita Mae Brown or was it Amy Holden Jones that? Um, describe this film as being about like a virgin's fear of sex. Oh yeah, um, I think it was Amy Holden Jones saying that that was like the main aspect of Brown's script that she kept. She said something about how like she had really ran with Brown's metaphor of like, yeah, a virgin's fear of sex. But I, it makes it sound like the film is very anti-sex and I don't really view it as such. I just view it as like, these like except for maybe what was her name Diane Mm -hmm. the boyfriend like Mm -hmm. women aren't really necessarily interested in like incorporating men into you you know these like private moments like when they call someone they call coach Janet to dispel like a dispute on like a game it's not like they're calling boys except Diana but Mm -hmm. yeah or I don't know if that's her name but yeah (laughs) I think it is Diane yeah it is interesting like yeah, it is like these girls are trying to like, I don't know if it's like to reclaim or kind of relive like kind of like a more innocent time or more youthful time while having like this no boys allowed slumber party, mm-hmm. slumber party together. Yeah, I, and I kind of wonder like, is this film about like if it's about anything, but like kind of like a, this girl's like fear of the world and maybe men and kind of, or just this like, female space being invaded by this like by male violence essentially Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's deeper than a fear of just like consensual sex I think Mm -hmm. anything it's the opposite it's like maybe the fear of like rape or yeah like um assault or just like being um gazed upon by by men and boys when you're not expecting to be like Mm -hmm yeah like he the driller actually drills the delivery man's eyes um so that maybe possibly hints at the fact that maybe he was also participating in like the voyeurism of the of the setting but I don't I don't really know exactly like there's not much to know about the delivery man yeah (laughs) other than being kind of like this silly uh set piece that I thoroughly enjoy (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, like to kind of go back to the character design of the of Restore, like, yeah, he just looks like a creepy guy that would say something disgusting to you on the street. Yeah, he's so creepy. He's so sweaty. He's yeah. just, he said that he was trying to mimic a peacock, like <laughs> I guess the continued method acting. He said that he was trying to bring an animalism to the role, but his animalism took the form of a peacock. So oh I mean, it does, it did manifest in a very creepy, like, manner, the way that yeah. he's looking wide-eyed around almost. It's just, yeah, it's bizarre and definitely, like, whatever he did, he made it very creepy. Yeah, he's already bringing, like, a very bizarre, creepy energy. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and yeah, and again, to the the kind of, like, phallic imagery, like, he is he's essentially like a serial rapist with this mm-hmm. drill. And then mm-hmm. at the end, it's like the three girls that like chop his dick off essentially. <laughs> I castrate him and it's yeah. uh, Valerie. And I guess I have this in my notes, but I, I didn't really like consider this in any previous viewings because I was finally watching it on a big screen. I have a TV now so I can <laughs> see things and I have subtitles. So I just like didn't realize I guess the importance of maybe um Valerie being the one to kind of castrate her castrate him with her much larger machete um kind of of Valerie Solanus um and the scum manifesto and kind of just like I mean I don't think her she and uh Rita Mae Brown were like particularly within the same communities but um yeah, there is this like idea of like castration and um, um, just something like 
Oh, and another thing about one of the characters, I guess, is um, they're the one that like is in the basketball jersey and the one and she's also wearing overalls at one point and ends up in the fridge. Her name is Kimberly Clark. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if this was intentional, but um, it's Kimberly Clark is also like a manufacturing a manufacturer that produces paper products, but specifically like Kotex and like um, uh, that diaper brand. I don't know, like it's mm -hmm. fem more feminine hygiene, feminine mm -hmm. hair products. Um, and they've been around for long enough that it could have possibly been something that was intentionally added into <laughs> the name, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, either way, it's like a funny detail. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I was just wanting to say that because he uses it on all of the men in the movie, mm -hmm. that there is like sort of like a homoeroticism with it. Like at one with Mr. Con content, he actually <laughs> he like uses it in a way that like severs his throat. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like provocative of like a deep throating situation. Yeah. And then was it it was oh it was one of the younger um peers who gets it through the heart and then I don't know the fact that he, yeah these men are also being killed with this very phallic penetrative um ribbed kind of apparatus <laughs> is yeah I, I felt like most of the men kind of did read gay like Mr. Content mm -hmm. there was something that definitely was queer coded and the two boys but, oh, for sure yeah when they're just like, they're sitting on a bed, they're just like, what if we just leave? <laughs> yeah, you can leave now if you want. <laughs> yeah, just like a cute little tender moment between them. Yeah. <laughs> that was so great. Um, all right, that's, I think that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Alex, for, for being on the show. It was so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This was actually my first um, instance of being on a podcast, I guess. I just. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah, I've... <laughs> You're my inaugural <laughs> presence. Yeah. Well, this is so great. That's that's so exciting. <laughs> and yeah, please come back anytime. Maybe we can talk about the sequel someday. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great. Cool. Um, where can people find your work? Um, so I have an Instagram account um under uh at Leslie. Leslie underscore Borden um, and um, Twitter at Tiny Spiritsies, I think. Um, yeah. Cool. And I have a Patreon if you want to um, subscribe and read all of the queer horror delights that I have there too and support my work. But I also have, yeah, my Instagram account. Oh, amazing. And people can find your Patreon through your Instagram? Uh, just through a link on my Instagram. Cool. Amazing. All right. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can listen to Bikini Drive-In every Sunday at 4 p.m. on CKW 95.9 FM. Um, you could also listen to it anywhere you find podcasts. Also, oh, yeah, this will be this will air on Halloween. So happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks. Bye.
Powered by volunteer community involvement, this is CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. 